You have tuned in to the Man of God podcast, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. As a graduation of the seminary students took place on Saturday, I want to shout out to all those who I've met. Many of you recognize my voice before you even know what I look like, and it's always a pleasure to meet you. There was something that Dr. Sam Waldron said in a sermon yesterday that really resonated with me, and that is, on the holiness of God, we are in a generation, this isn't his exact words, but the meaning is the same, that does not properly understand the holiness of God. This has been a burden of mine for some months, so what more appropriate than to read A chapter on the holiness of God by Stephen Charnock in the existence and attributes of God. Who is like unto you, Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15, verse 11. This verse is one of the loftiest descriptions of the majesty and excellency of God in the whole scripture. It is part of Moses' triumphant song. After a great and real and a typical victory, in a womb of which all the deliverances of the church were couched, it is the first song upon holy record, and it consists of gratulatory and prophetic manner. It casts a look backward to what God did for them in the deliverance from Egypt, and a look forward to what God shall do for the church in future ages. That deliverance was but a rough draft of something more excellent to be wrought towards the closing up of the world, when his plague shall be poured upon the anti-Christian powers, which had revived the same song of Moses in the church. It's fitted so many ages before for such a scene of affairs. Revelation 15 verses 2 and 3. It is observed, therefore, that many words in this song are put in the future tense, noting a time to come. In the very first word, verse 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song, implying that it was composed and calculated for the celebrating some greater action of God's, which was to be wrought in the world. Upon this account, some of the Jewish rabbins, from the consideration of this remark, asserted the doctrine of the resurrection to be meant in this place, that Moses and those Israelites should rise again to sing the same song. For some greater miracles God should work, and greater triumphs he should bring forth, exceeding those wonders at their deliverance from Egypt. The prophet, in the midst of his historical narrative, seems to be in an ecstasy, and brings out in a stately exaltation of God in the text, Who is like you, Lord, among the gods? Interrogations are in scripture the strongest affirmations or negations. It is here a strong affirmation of the incomparableness of God and a strong denial of the worthiness of all creatures to be partners with them in the degrees of his excellency. It is a preference of God before all creatures in holiness to which the purity of creatures is but a shadow and desert of reverence and veneration. He, being fearful in praises, The angels cover their faces when they adore him in his particular perfections. Amongst the gods, among the idols of the nation, say some, others say it is not to be found that the heathen idols are even dignified with the title of strong or mighty, as the word translated as gods and ports, and therefore they understand it of the angels or other potentates of the world, or rather inclusively of all that are noted for 
or can lay claim to the title of strength and might upon the earth or in heaven. God is so great and majestic that no creature can share with him in his praise, fearful in praises. Various are the interpretations of this passage to be reverenced in praises. His praise ought to be celebrated with a religious fear. Fear is a product of his mercy as well as his justice. He has forgiveness that he may be feared. Psalm 130 verse 4. Her fearful in praises, whom none can praise without amazement to considerations of his works. None can truly praise him without being affected with astonishment at his greatness. Her fearful in praises, whom no mortal can sufficiently praise, since he is above all praise. Whatsoever a human tongue can speak, or an angelical understanding think of the excellency of his nature, the greatness of his works falls short of the vastness of the divine perfection. A creature's praises of God are as much below the transcendent immanency of God is the meanness of a creature's being is below the eternal fullness of the Creator, or rather, fearful or terrible in praises. That is in a manner of your praise, and a learned Andrew Rivet concurs with me in this sense. The works of God, celebrated in song, were terrible. It was a miraculous overthrow of the strength and flower of a mighty nation. His judgments were severe as well as his mercy was seasonable. The word signifies glorious and illustrious as well as terrible and fearful. No man can hear the praise of your name for those great judicial acts without some astonishment at your justice. The stream in your holiness, the spring of those mighty works, seems to be the sense of the following words, doing wonders, fearful in the manner of your praise. They be in wonders which you have done among us and for us, doing wonders, congealing the waters by a wind to make them stand like walls for the rescue of the Israelites and melting them by a wind for the overthrow of the Egyptians or prodigies that challenge the greatest adorations of that mercy which delivered the one and that justice which punished the other and of the arm of that power in which he effected both his gracious and righteous purposes. So observe that the judgments of God upon his enemies, as well as his mercy to his people, are manners of praise. The perfections of God appear in both. Justice and mercy are so linked together in his acts of providence that the one cannot be forgotten, while the other is acknowledged. He is never so terrible is in the assemblies of his saints, in the deliverance of them. Psalm 89 verse 7 As the creation was erected by him for his glory, so all the acts of his government are designed for the same end, and his creatures deny him his due, if they acknowledge not his excellency in whatsoever dreadful, as well as pleasing garbs, it appears in the world, his terror as well as his righteousness appears when he is a God of salvation. By terrible things and righteousness will you answer us, O God of our salvation. But the expression I pitch upon in the text to handle 
is glorious in holiness. He is magnified or honorable in holiness, as the word is translated in Isaiah 42, verse 21. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Your holiness is shown forth admirably in the last exploit against the enemies and oppressors of your people. The holiness of God is his glory, is his grace, is his riches. Holiness is his crown, and his mercy is his treasure. This is the blessedness and nobleness of his nature. It renders him glorious in himself, and glorious to his creatures that understand anything of this lovely perfection. Holiness is a glorious perfection belonging to the nature of God. Hence he is in scripture more often referred to the Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. More often is he referred to as holy than he is almighty. It's set forth by this part of his dignity more than by any other. This is more affixed as an epithet to his name than any other. You never find it expressed, his mighty name, or his wise name, but his great name, and most of all, his holy name. This is his greatest title of honor, and this does the majesty and venerableness of his name appear when the sinfulness of Sennacherib is aggravated. The Holy Ghost takes a rise from this attribute. Second Kings 19.22 You have lifted up your eyes on high, even against the Holy One of Israel, not against the wise, not against the mighty, but against the Holy One of Israel, is that in which the majesty of God was most illustrious. It is upon this account he is called light. His impurity is called darkness. Both in this sense are opposed to one another. He is pure and unmixed light free from all blemish in his essence, nature, and operations. The heathens have owned it. Proclus calls him the undefiled governor of the world, the poetical transformations of their false gods, and the extravagancies committed by them was in the account of the wisest of them, an unholy thing to report and hear. The absurdist heretics have owned it, the Manichees, the Marcionites, the thought evil came by necessity, yet would solve God's being the author of it by asserting two distinct eternal principles. One, the original of evil, as God was the fountain of good. So rooted was the notion of this divine purity that none would ever slander goodness itself with that which was so disparaging to it. The nature of God cannot rationally be conceived without it. Though the power of God be the first rational conclusion drawn from the sight of its works, wisdom, the next, from the order and connection of its works, purity, must resolve from the beauty of its works. The God cannot be deformed by evil, who has made everything so beautiful in its time. The notion of a God cannot be entertained without separating from him whatsoever is impure and bespotting both in his essence and actions. Do we conceive him infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, 
and wise and inimitable in his counsels, merciful in his proceedings with men, and whatsoever other perfections may dignify so sovereign a being. Yet if we conceive him destitute of this excellent perfection, and imagine him possessed with the least contagion of evil, we make him but an infinite monster, and sully all those perfections we ascribed to him before. We rather own him a devil than a god. It is a contradiction to be God and to be darkness, or to have one mode of darkness mixed with his light. It is a less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. The one makes him no god, the other a deformed, unlovely, and detestable god. Plutarch said, and not amiss, that he should count himself less injured by that man that should deny that there was such a man as Plutarch, than by him that should affirm that there was such a one indeed, but he was a debauched fellow, a loose and vicious person. It is a less wrong to God to discard any acknowledgments of his being, and account him nothing, than to believe him to exist. But imagine a base and unholy deity, he that saith God is not holy, speaks much worse than he that says there is no God at all. Let these two things be considered one. If any, this attribute has an excellency above his other perfections. There are some attributes of God we prefer because of our interest in them and the relation they bear to us as we esteem his goodness before his power and his mercy in which he relieves us before his justice in which he punishes us, is there are some we more delight in because of the goodness we receive by them. So there are some that God delights to honor because of their excellency. None is sounded out so loftily with such solemnity and so frequently by angels that stand before a throne as this. Where do you find any other attribute troubled in the praises of it? Is this in Isaiah 6, verse 3? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In Revelation 4, verse 8, the four beasts rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, his power or sovereignty of Lord of hosts is but once mentioned, but with a triple repetition of his holiness, do you hear any angelical song, any other perfection of the divine nature thrice repeated? Where do we read of the crying out, eternal, 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 or faithful, faithful, faithful Lord God of hosts? Whatsoever other attribute is left out, this God would have to fill the mouths of angels and blessed spirits forever in heaven. Number two, he singles it out to swear by. Psalm 89, verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. In Amos 4, verse 2, the Lord will swear by his holiness. He twice swears by his holiness. Once by his power. Isaiah 62, 8. Once by all when he swears by his name. Jeremiah 44, 26. He lays here his holiness 
to pledge for the assurance of his promise is the attribute most dear to him, most valued by him, as though no other could give an assurance parallel to it in this concern of an everlasting redemption, which is there spoken of. He that swears, swears by a greater than himself. God, having no greater than himself, swears by himself, and swearing here by his holiness seems to equal that single one to all his other attributes, as if he were more concerned in the honor of it than of all the rest. It is as if he should have said, Since I have not a more excellent perfection to swear by than that of my holiness, I lay this to ponder for your security, and bind myself by that which I shall never part with, were it possible for me to be stripped of all the rest. It is a tacit imprecation of himself. If I lie unto David, let me never be counted holy, or thought righteous enough to be trusted by angels or men. This attribute he makes most of. Number three, it is his glory and beauty. Holiness is the honor of the creature. Sanctification and honor are linked together. For Thessalonians 4 verse 4, much more is it the honor of God. It is the image of God in the creature. Ephesians 4 verse 24. When we take the picture of a man, we draw the most beautiful part, the face, which is a member of the greatest excellency, when God would be drawn to the life as much as he can be in the spirit of his creatures. He is drawn in this attribute as being the most beautiful perfection of God and most valuable with him. Power is his hand and arm. Omniscience, his eye. Mercy, his bowels. Eternity, his duration. But holiness is his beauty. Second Chronicles 20 verse 21 Should praise the beauty of holiness. In Psalm 27 verse 4 David desires to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire into his holy temple. That is the holiness of God manifested in its hatred of sin and the daily sacrifices. Holiness was the beauty of the temple. Isaiah 46 verse 11 Holy and beautiful house are joined together, much more the beauty of God that dwelt in the sanctuary. This renders him lovely to all his innocent creatures, though formidable to the guilty ones. A heathen philosopher could call it the beauty of the divine essence and say that God was not so happy by an eternity of life as by an excellency of virtue. And the angel's song intimate it to be his glory. Isaiah 6, 3, the whole earth is full of your glory, that is, of his holiness and his laws, and in his judgments against sin, that being the attribute applauded by them before. Number four, it is his very life, so it is called in Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God, that is, from the holiness of God, speaking of the opposite to it the uncleanness and profaneness of the Gentiles, 
We are only alienated from that which we are bound to imitate. But this is a perfection always set out as a pattern of our actions. Be you holy as I am holy. No other is proposed as our copy. Alienated from that purity of God, which is as much as his life, without which he could not live. If he were stripped of this, he would be a dead God, more than by the lack of any other perfection. His swearing by it animates as much. He swears often by his own life. As I live, saith the Lord, so he swears by his holiness, as if it were his life, and more his life than any other. Let me not live, or let me not be holy, all are one in his oath. His deity could not outlive the life of his purity. But secondly, as it seems to challenge an excellency above all his other perfections, so it is the glory of all the rest. As it is the glory of the Godhead, so it is the glory of every perfection in the Godhead. As his power is the strength of them, so his holiness is the beauty of them. As all would be weak, without almightiness to back them, so all would be uncomely without holiness to adorn them. Should this be sullied, all the rest would lose their honor and their comfortable efficacy. Is at the same instant that the sun should lose its light, it would lose its heat, its strength, its generative and quickening virtue, its sincerity is a luster of every grace in a Christian. So is purity, the splendor of every attribute in the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom, a holy wisdom. His arm of power, a holy arm. Psalm 98, verse 1. His truth or promise, a holy promise. Holy and true go hand in hand. Revelation 6, verse 10. His name which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Yea, he is righteous in all of his ways, and holy in all of his works. Psalm 1, 40, verse 17. It is the rule of all of his acts, the source of all of his punishments. If every attribute of the deity were a distinct member, purity would be the form, the soul, the spirit to animate them. Without it, his patience would be an indulgence to sin, his mercy a fondness, his wrath a madness, his power a tyranny, his wisdom an unworthy subtlety. It is this that gives a decorum to all. His mercy is not exercised without it, since he pardons none but those that have an interest by union in the obedience of a mediator, which was so delightful to his infinite purity, his justice, which guilty man is apt to tax with cruelty and violence in the exercise of it, is not acted out of the compass of this rule. In acts of man's vindictive justice there is something of impurity, perturbation, passion, some mixture of cruelty, but none of these fall upon God in the severest acts of wrath. When God appears to Ezekiel 
in the resemblance of fire, to signify his anger against the house of Judah for their idolatry. From his loins downward there was an appearance of fire, but from the loins upward the appearance of brightness is the color of amber. Ezekiel 8 verse 2. His heart is clear in his most terrible acts of vengeance. It is a pure flame in which he scorches and burns his enemies. He is holy in the most fiery appearance. This attribute, therefore, is never so much applauded as when a sword has been drawn and he has manifested the greatest fierceness against his enemies. The magnificent and triumphant expression of it in the text follows just upon God's miraculous defeat and ruin of the Egyptian army. The sea covered them. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. Then it follows, Who is like unto you, O Lord, glorious in holiness? And when it was so celebrated by the seraphim in Isaiah 6.3, it was when the posts moved and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 4, which are signs of anger. Psalm 18, 7 and 8. And when he was about to send Isaiah upon a message of spiritual and temporal judgments, that he would make the heart of that people fat, and their ears heavy, and their eyes shut, waste their cities without inhabitant, and their houses without man, to make the land desolate. Verses 9 to 12. And the angels which here applaud him for his holiness are the executioners of his justice, and here call seraphim from burning or fiery spirits as being the ministers of his wrath. His justice is part of his holiness, in which he reduces into order those things that are out of order when he is consuming men by his fury. It is not diminish, but manifest purity. Zephaniah 3 verse 5. The just Lord is in the midst of her. He will do no iniquity. Every action of his is free from all tincture of evil. It is also celebrated with praise by the four beasts about a throne when he appears in a covenant garb with a rainbow about a throne. And yet, with thunderings and lightnings shot against his enemies. Revelation 4 verse 8, compared with verses 3 and 5, to show that all of his acts of mercy, as well as justice, are clear from any stain. This is a crown of all of his attributes, the life of all his decrees, the brightness of all of his actions. Nothing is decreed by him. Nothing is acted by him but what is worthy of the dignity and becoming the honor of this attribute. For the better understanding this attribute, observe 1. The nature of this holiness. 2. The demonstration of it. 3. The purity of his nature and all of his acts about sin. And 4. The application of all this to ourselves. 1. The nature of divine holiness in general. The holiness of God negatively is a perfect and unpolluted freedom from all evil. 
as we call pure gold that is not embased by any dross, and that garment clean that is free from every spot, so the nature of God is estranged from all shadow of evil, all imaginable contagion. Positively, it is a rectitude or integrity of the divine nature, or that conformity of it, in affection and action to the divine will, as to his eternal law in which he works with a becomingness to his own excellency, and in which he has a delight and complacency in everything agreeable to his will, and an abhorrence of everything contrary to it, as there is no darkness in his understanding, so there is no spot in his will, as his mind is possessed with all truth, so there is no deviation in his will from it. He loves all truth and goodness. He hates all falsity and evil. In regard of his righteousness, he loves righteousness. Psalm 11, 7. The righteous Lord loves righteousness and has no pleasure in wickedness. Psalm 5, verse 4. He values purity in his creatures and detests all impurity, whether inward or outward. We may indeed distinguish the holiness of God from his righteousness in our conceptions. Holiness is a perfection absolutely considered in the nature of God. Righteousness, a perfection is referred to others and his actions towards them and upon them, in particular this property of the divine nature, is an essential and necessary perfection. He is essentially and necessarily holy. It is the essential glory of his nature. His holiness is as necessary as his being, as necessary as his omniscience. As he cannot but know what is right, so he cannot but do what is just. His understanding is not as created understanding capable of ignorance as well as knowledge, so his will is not as created wills capable of unrighteousness as well as righteousness. There can be no contradiction or contrariety in the divine nature to know what is right and to do what is wrong. If so, there would be a diminution of its blessedness. He would not be a God always blessed. Blessed forever as he is. Romans 10.6 He is as necessarily holy as he is necessarily God, as necessarily without sin, as without change, as he was God from eternity, so he was holy from eternity. Number two, God is only absolutely holy. There is none holy as the Lord, 1 Samuel 2, verse 2. It is a peculiar glory of his nature, and there is none good but God, so none holy but God. A creature can be essentially holy, because mutable, holiness is a substance of God, but a quality and accident in a creature. God is infinitely holy, creatures finitely holy, he is holy from himself. Creatures are holy by derivation from him. He is not only holy, but holiness. Holiness in the highest degree is his sole prerogative.
is the highest heaven is called the heaven of heavens because it embraces in a circle all the heavens and contains the magnitude of them and has a greater vastness above all that it encloses. So is God, the holy of holies. He contains the holiness of all creatures put together and infinitely more. So let me close this discourse by an exhortation. Is holiness an imminent perfection of the divine nature? Then let us get and preserve right and strong apprehensions of this divine perfection. Without a due sense of it, we can never exalt God in our hearts. And the more distinct conceptions we have of this and the rest of his attributes, the more we glorify him. When Moses considered God as a strength and salvation, he would exalt him, Exodus 15, verse 2, and he could never break out in so admirable a doxology as that in a text without a deep sense of the glory of his purity, which he speaks of with so much admiration. Such a sense will be of use to us in promoting genuine convictions. A deep consideration of the holiness of God cannot but be followed with a deep consideration of our impure and miserable condition. By reason of sin, we cannot glance upon it without reflections upon our own vileness. Adam no sooner heard the voice of a holy God in the garden, but he considered his own nakedness with shame and fear. Genesis 3.10 Much less can we fix our minds upon it, but we must be touched with a sense of our own uncleanness. The clear beams of the sun discover that filthiness in our garments and members, which was not visible in the darkness of the night. Impure metals are discerned by comparing them with that which is pure and perfect in its kind. This sense of guilt is the first natural result upon a sense of this excellent perfection, and a sense of the imperfection of our own righteousness is the next. Who can think of it and reflect upon himself as an object fit for divine love? Who can have a due thought of it without regarding himself as stubble before a consuming fire? Who can, without a confusion of heart and face, glance upon that pure eye which beholds with detestation the foul motes, as well as the filthier and bigger spots, when Isaiah saw his glory and heard how lightly the angels exalted God for this perfection? He was in a cold sweat, ready to swoon, till a seraphim with a coal from the altar both purged and revived him. Isaiah 6, verses 5 and 7, they are sound and genuine convictions, which have the prospect of divine purity for their immediate spring, and not a foresight of our own misery, when it is not the punishment we have deserved, but the holiness we have offended. Most grates our hearts. Such convictions are the rude drafts of the divine image in our spirits, and grateful to God, because they are an acknowledgment of the glory of this attribute, and the first mark of honor given to it by the creature. Those that never had a sense of their own vileness, 
were always destitute of a sense of God's holiness. And by the way, we may observe that those that scoff at any for hanging down a head under the consideration and conviction of sin, as is too usual with the world, scoff at them for having deeper apprehensions of the purity of God than themselves, and consequently make a mock of the holiness of God, which is the ground of those convictions. A sense of this will render us humble in the possession of the greatest holiness a creature is capable of. We're apt to be proud with a Pharisee when we look upon others wallowing in the mire of base and unnatural lusts. But let any clap their wings if they can in a vain boasting and exaltation when they view the holiness of God. What torch, if it had reason, would be proud and swagger in its own light if it compared itself with the sun? Who can stand before this holy Lord God is a just reflection of the holiest person, as it was of those for Samuel 6.20, that had felt the marks of his jealousy after their looking into the ark, the likely out of affection to it, and triumphant joy at its return. When did the angels testify by the covering of their faces? their weakness to bear the luster of his majesty, but when they beheld his glory, when did they signify by their covering their feet, the shame of their own vileness, but when their hearts were fullest of the applaudings of disperfection. Isaiah 6, 2 and 3, though they found themselves without spot, yet not with such a holiness that they could appear either with their faces or feet, unveiled and unmasked in the presence of God. Does the immense splendor of this attribute engender shaming reflections in those pure spirits? What will it, what should it do in us, to dwell in houses of clay and creep up and down with that clay upon our backs? and too much of it in our hearts. The stars themselves, which appear beautiful in the night, are masked at the awakening of the sun. What a dim light is that of a glow-worm to that of the sun. The apprehensions of this made the elders humble themselves in the midst of their glory by casting down their crowns before a throne.